says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Father, we just humbly ask for the grace and help of your Holy Spirit once again as we continue now in our worship to just honor you by giving to you the submission of our hearts and our minds through the word of God this morning. We pray now as always, prepare us accordingly and please speak through the power and ministry of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, it's amazing how sometimes in life, things that seem to be the most unfortunate things that may happen from time to time can actually end up being some of the most powerful and some of the most life-changing events for us. Such is true, I believe, regarding the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. The unfortunate thing that the Son of God, the Savior of the world, suffered greatly and died upon a cross of brutal death, but yet the power that that brings to those who believe in what God was accomplishing in that event is incredible. It changes a life forever. Now remember last time we left off looking at the beginning of verse 17 where Paul had just stated in the first part of the verse that God had sent him to Corinth with a primary objective in his ministry assignment. He told us there we left off last time in the first part of verse 17 where Paul had said Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Again the word preach means to proclaim. The word gospel means the good news. And so Paul here is stating that his primary ministry assignment was to declare to people the good news about the salvation that God has provided for us as sinful people through his son, Jesus Christ. That though we are all sinful, though we're all guilty before God, no matter who we are, we've all failed at thought, word, and deed in different times. And that separates us from God now relationally. And that can separate us from God and from heaven eternally unless that's reconciled. And we all deserve eternal judgment because of our sin. But yet God in his great love sent his son Jesus Christ who lived the sinless perfect life as a man that none of us can. Satisfying the righteous requirement of heaven for us. And then Jesus stepped into our place as a human mediator. And even then took the punishment that we deserve for our sin because sin must be punished. And so Christ, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, simultaneously took that punishment, died in our place, raised from the dead, defeating the power of death, and now offers to us the opportunity to have access to God 
forgiveness of our sins freely available to us through his blood that was shed, the opportunity to have the gift of eternal life freely given, and he can give to us those things. And this is the good news that Paul said was the primary objective above everything else I did that I was to share, he says, when I came there to Corinth. Now, regarding the preaching of the gospel, he then goes on in verse 17 to say, regarding proclaiming the gospel, it was not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So Paul here is indicating that he purposely refrained from a certain style of presentation with the gospel. You might say a clever presentation or something that seemed witty because he did not want the effectiveness of the message of the cross of Jesus Christ and him being crucified to lose its impact on those who were hearing that important message. Paul specifically says there in verse 17, I did not proclaim the gospel message, he says, using the wisdom of words. We have to understand what Paul's saying there, especially in light of the ancient Greek culture that he was speaking to in that day and time, particularly in Corinth. Understand, in that Greek culture, their heroes were not people like a sports star like a Michael Jordan or a, a Tom Brady quarterback. Their heroes were the philosophers. It was the great thinkers of the day, those who were incredible orators who could give powerful messages. They idolized wisdom and knowledge. In fact, they would fill full stadiums like we do for sports just to hear a powerful speaker give a presentation. They loved someone who could captivate an audience with incredible insights and who could wax very eloquent in the way they could present things and really stir up a crowd by the way that they could speak. But the problem with that communication form was it typically became a lot more about the communicator and how they communicated rather than the content of the message that was actually being shared. And Paul, understanding this, realized it was much less about the content of the message and its validity and more about the creativity and captivating presentation of the messenger, which kind of put the focus on that. Paul, not wanting to misguide, focus on the wrong thing and knowing the content of the message that he was sharing was absolutely critical, that people understood the claims of God and the crucifixion of Christ, he avoided culture's way of eloquent speaking because he knew it would distract people. And so Paul here says, I purposely made sure, he says, not to use overly clever statements, to try and get too catchy in my presentation with creative ideas or a perfectly polished communication form and he said i actually sought to do that purposely for concern that i might cause the message of the cross to be something that somehow would be emptied of its power and its effectiveness by those who are listening to it and as i see paul say this i think it's a good reminder to all of us that the effective presentation of the gospel message of salvation through jesus christ who was crucified for our sins and rose from the dead is not about how cleverly we can package the presentation. It's not about how interesting we can be to try and convince our listeners with a great sales pitch, but rather it's about making sure we faithfully share with integrity what the true message of the gospel biblically really is. 
and making sure we accurately tell people the full message and not just like a, you know, a, a, a corrupt salesperson maybe just say what things we need to say to kind of reel somebody in to make, them, you know, make a quick commitment and get a close on the deal because that's going to do nothing to help anyone. Paul says, no, what is important, most importantly, is the integrity of the message, not how perfectly it's communicated. God can take care of the rest. Paul then says in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness, he says, to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So notice he clarifies the message of the cross is embraced differently by people, no matter how it's presented. And he says the difference of reception is what depends upon impacting someone's eternal destiny, whether they end up perishing eternally or they end up being saved eternally. Again, we have to understand what the cross or being crucified represented, particularly in that culture in which Paul was writing these things. Unlike today where the cross has kind of been sanitized or you might say, you know, kind of become this romanticized idea. We make jewelry out of it and T-shirts and we put up cute, you know, you know, pictures and all these kind of things. We almost have this cozy feeling today with the cross. You have to understand in that day, the cross was the most disgraceful and degrading form of capital punishment. It was an excruciating painful way of punishing people the roman empire perfected the process of crucifixion they didn't invent it but they perfected it well with the iron fist of rome to torture anyone who rebelled against the rulership of the roman empire and unlike today's view as i said where the cross has kind of given us a different idea it seems it was a horrible form of death sentence it would be like today people walking around wearing little golden electric chairs on their neck. It's like, well, that's, that's horrible. Why would you wear such? Well, that would be the idea in their mind in that day. The cross represented something that was utilized for those considered to be the most vile people in society. It was reserved for the most degrading and despicable individuals and criminals. So it was viewed in this disgraceful way. Now, with that mindset understood, Understand, that's why Paul says here, the message of the cross becomes foolishness to some. Think about it. What's the message of the cross? The message of the cross declares that mankind needs to be saved by God and they need to be forgiven. And God in his love for humanity accomplished this by lovingly condescending, humbling himself on this earth in the person of Jesus. And almighty God was put to death on a cross that God allowed himself to be crucified. Now, in a culture where Greek gods were idolized in worship for their power to conquer and to exercise their mighty strength, imagine hearing the message of the cross saying that a god or God allowed himself to be crucified by mere mortal men on this earth. I mean, the... the lunacy of that in the mind of many who would just hear it at surface value they would say this is your god this man hanging on a cross publicly shame this is your god how could you say that that's a savior he can't even keep himself in the weakness of his ability from allowing mere mortal men to put him to death in the most disgraceful way possible how could this be possible and so therefore the message of the cross to many was foolishness 
it just seemed like something that was impossible to grasp. Those who relied only on human reasoning, this message appeared completely foolish to them because they couldn't reconcile it mentally. They were unwilling to look further into what God was doing and believe it as God's declared truth. So they stumbled over this because their intellect was hindering them from seeing what God was really doing. And their desire to reason it out logically was keeping them from believing. And those who viewed the message of Christ dying on a cross as foolish and therefore would not believe, Paul says, verse 18, these are those, he says there, who are therefore now unfortunately perishing. That is, they are in the process of perishing eternally or headed to hell. That in unbelief, they reject God's way in human pride because they can't reconcile it mentally, and therefore they put themselves on a pathway to suffer eternally because they're not right with God relationally. Yet, Paul says in verse 18, there is another group who are not perishing, and he says it's those of us who are being saved instead. To those willing to humbly believe what God did for us through Jesus Christ and that this was God doing this and accomplishing it in his wisdom and love for us, that same exact message of the cross becomes the power of God, Paul says, to bring us into an encounter with God and let us experience the power of God's salvation to forgive our sins and give us the gift of eternal life as the spirit of the Lord powerfully converts our soul and changes us. How interesting, the same message, yet two different responses to it. Just like the same sun can harden and bake the ground, it also can melt ice. And the same message in the same way could have two different responses in the receptivity to it. And this is what God is declaring here. One group hardens their heart in unbelief, causing them to stay on a path of eternal judgment. Another individual or another group willingly and humbly believes God's plan through Christ and are now being saved. Hebrews 4 says the same message was preached to them as well as to us, only they did not profit them. It had no value, it is, because they did not mix it with faith or believe. Again, it's necessary to mix faith and to choose to believe God's message to experience the power of of salvation to those who see it as weak foolish or dumb to have to trust jesus christ in order to get to heaven and have a relationship with god they are those who stay in a condition of perishing eternally but to those who are willing to have childlike faith and humble themselves and believe the message we are experiencing the power of god and being saved as a result now to show the danger of upholding human reasoning over humble trust in God, Paul goes on in verse 19 to say, for it is written, quoting Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now he quotes here from Isaiah, in that day Israel was in need of help and deliverance, but rather than cry out to God for help, instead of trust the Lord and humbly look to him, for their salvation, they instead opted to rely upon their own ideas to solve their own problems. So they began to look to and rely upon the help of turning to Egypt to save and to spare them. And unfortunately, as they looked for deliverance in a worldly means, God was condemning this error of reliance upon their human reasoning alone rather than simple trust and dependence upon him. 
And so that's why God declared what Paul quotes here, that he would destroy the human wisdom they were using and bring it to nothing. And that God, in essence, was saying, look, I'm going to show them they're not smarter than me as God. That their ideas are not going to benefit them by choosing their own way over accepting my way and my work that I want to perform for them. So Paul, in light of this, kind of now challenges, notice the wisest, you might say, or the most intelligent of the age, kind of probing them if somehow they could outsmart God. That's what he says in verse 20. Look what he says. He says, tell me, where is the wise? Or where is the scribe? Where's your smartest of men? He says, where's the disputer of this age? Has not God, he says, made foolish the wisdom of this world? So here in verse 20, Paul's basically saying, tell me, where are the wisest of men? Bring me, he says, the scribes, the most intelligent the greatest philosophers, where are the great intellects and those who can debate with great skill and somehow try and defeat God and his plans? Now, look, by no means is the Bible here trying to belittle the value of human intelligence. That's not what God's doing here. He's not devaluing great thinking and intelligence. God has blessed us with a marvelous capacity in the human mind. The ability to be able to use our minds to learn and has brought many wonderful things into human existence and has great value in God giving it to us. The problem we know, however, is when the human intellect, great as it is, becomes a hindrance to spiritual experience with God. And that indeed can be a problem. When a man begins to think he's smarter than God or even too smart for God, or if somehow it shows a lack of intelligence to believe God and we start to dispute God's truth or God's word or dispute the realities of Jesus Christ as foolish. That's why Paul concludes the end of verse 20 by saying, has not God, he says, made foolish the wisdom of this world? Paul's saying, has not God often made worldly wisdom of men at times look utterly foolish? The answer is yes. I mean, just think how many times throughout human history Men have thought their ideas were very right about a particular subject, whether scientifically or any subject for that matter. You know, those who were so convinced about certain things, you know, medically, those who thought that, okay, if you're sick, then what we need to do is cut you and let blood just drain out of you. And by bloodletting, illnesses will go away. And later on, you know, as more research is done and men become more intelligent, start to realize, okay, that's really not the best way to help someone, <laughs> who's got an illness. And think of all the areas where at one time ancient medicine or older, and we're constantly as human beings, as we learn more and research more, realizing, hey, ideas that we were once convinced were so right. In our wisdom, we now realize we were completely wrong. And the reality is, look, all along, God knew what was right. God's always known what was right because God's creator and God knows all things. And how many times, Paul says over history, has he said God made foolish the wisdom of this world and shown how foolish men's wisdom actually was as time passed on. Often the reasoning of man is incorrect, but God's wisdom always proves correct. It ends up always being right in the end. So Paul says, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, he says, therefore, it pleased God through the foolishness of a message preached to save those 
who believe. So Paul shows now the incredible wisdom of God's plan of salvation and even, you might say, the simplicity of the message God selected in order for people to be rescued eternally. There in verse 21, he noticed God's method of salvation was based not only in his love, but Paul says it was also based in verse 21, the wisdom of God. That is the fact that God knows everything and has full awareness of all things. And he even understands, of course, humanity better than we know ourselves. And therefore, he exercised his divine wisdom to establish a plan of salvation that was the best way for all of humanity universally. And it does not require, thanks be to God, high intelligence, at least for me anyway, that it does not require long paths of research. But what it does require is humility and the willingness to exercise faith or to choose to believe. He first addresses how human reasoning alone is not the pathway to come into an experience with God. That's what he says in verse 21, the first part, where he says, since the, in the wisdom of God, the world, notice, through wisdom, that is human reason or logic, through wisdom, did not come to know God. That is, God wisely established a plan whereby we could come into an experience with God and experience forgiveness of sins and salvation and that human reasoning would not be sufficient alone for a person to be able to experience that with God. Because think about it, that would prohibit at least some, if not a lot of us. It would prohibit small children who weren't able to reason things out to a great degree logically. It would only favor those who were smart enough to understand God or to be able to figure things out. And God's proved this plan out as well because think how sadly, and it is sad, how sadly some of our world's most brilliant individuals and greatest thinkers ignore God or reject God because they feel like somehow it's a belittling of their great intelligence. And somehow their intelligence actually becomes a hindrance. Look, God can use our mind, but we need humility. We need faith. That's the central issue. We come to know God as he reveals himself to a searching heart that willingly wants to see. Listen to what Jesus said about this. He said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and have revealed them to little children. The idea is those who are childlike. Yes, Father, for this was what pleased you to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those who the Son chooses to reveal to them. Again, Jesus indicated this very reality that we come to know God not by our reasoning, but by humility and faith to believe, and then God gives revelation supernaturally that's what paul says in the second half of the verse where he tells us the means whereby god does give us an experience and allow us to be saved notice he says it pleased god since we couldn't come to know him through our intellect alone it pleased god instead through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe that is it was god's pleasure to use the simple method of preaching or we just might say proclamation of the truth to our souls. Whether the simple gospel, listen, is proclaimed from a podium in a church, 
in a stadium, or whether it's just declared and proclaimed by one person to another in a simple conversation, it is through this means of the proclamation of how men are saved that God saves souls who are willing to believe that message. It does not require fancy dramas or great skits or fantastic artistic demonstrations, just the simple sharing of the truths of the claims of the gospel and the Holy Spirit's empowerment of that message if someone is willing to believe God saves them. Now, this tells us a few things. First of all, it brings God pleasure to save people. One of the greatest ways we can see God pleased is to see people get saved and come to know him. It also tells us this as well. God can and will use any person to bring another person to salvation because all we need to do is simply share the message of the gospel. It's not how we present it. It's just the fact that I find enough courage to actually present it and actually tell someone the truths of the gospel message of salvation. And it requires people, however, to humbly believe it and receive the message for themselves. We can't make them do that, but it's necessary because he says it's through the message preached, God will save, notice, those who believe. They have to choose to believe. That's their part. And when they choose to believe, God brings salvation. Reminds us, God reveals himself and brings a person into an experience with him, not when they understand everything perfectly, but honestly, when they choose to simply believe. I don't know about you, I didn't have any church experience, you know, growing up or before I got saved, but I simply heard the claims of the gospel and I, I didn't understand hardly anything. I never read the Bible. Genesis was a rock group. I knew nothing. But what I heard was the simple gospel message and I chose to say, you know what? That resonates with my heart and I need that. I believe that. And because I believe it, I receive it for myself. And salvation came to my soul as it's come to your soul. Paul says in light of this, verse 22, for Jews request a sign. And Greeks, they seek after wisdom. In other words, sadly, demanding signs of proof misled the heart of many of the Jewish people in Jesus' first coming. We know this. Very unfortunate. The Jewish religious leaders and many in Israel in that day refused to believe upon Jesus in his first coming because they wanted a Messiah that was a political ruler and that would come and overthrow the power of Roman rulership. And they cared, interestingly enough, more about politics and that their society would be a certain way than they did the spiritual condition of their soul. Boy, that seems to go along a lot still today. People are more concerned about politics and societal events than what really matters, the condition of their soul. And so they overlooked Christ the first time he came as a suffering servant. And instead, though Jesus had done many miraculous signs and many wonders and miracles, they kept demanding more and more, more signs, more signs. Show us another sign. Prove it again. Prove it again. To where Jesus ultimately said a wicked and adulterous generation is one that seeks after signs. In other words, the hindrance of many of the ancient Jewish people in their mindset was show us more proof until we're satisfied, then we will believe. And look, the truth of the matter is, no matter how much proof Jesus gave them, until they chose to believe, they would not believe. 
And sadly today, many still hinder themselves spiritually with the same request. I need just a little bit more proof. Just a little bit more proof. Look, God did miracles all throughout Israel's history before Jesus ever even came. He did miracle after miracle. And what was the biggest problem with ancient Israel in the Old Testament? Unbelief. Seeing signs does not guarantee someone's faith. Seeing signs can help as an addendum, but it is the humility to willingly choose to believe the truth of God. The Bible says that actually once you believe, then you see. It's not once I see, I'll believe. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches once you believe, then you see it. Then your eyes are opened. And he says here, the Jews, they demand a sign. The Greeks, however, they love philosophy. We're seekers of higher reasoning. He says they're constantly seeking after more wisdom. In other words, the stumbling block for the Greek mindset was they needed to understand everything. And if they couldn't understand it, they couldn't line it up with their logic and grasp it mentally, then they just discounted it as not possible. It can't be true because I can't figure it out all mentally. And that's a very sad thing as well. There are those who remain blinded today spiritually because they won't allow God to be bigger than their mind. They won't allow the truths of God to be bigger than their human reason. But Paul says we don't compromise. Nonetheless, verse 23, we continue to preach. Notice Christ crucified. He says to the Jews and to the Greeks. He says a stumbling block. He says to the Jews and to the Greeks, it is foolishness again to the jews the message was a stumbling block because they would not accept the messiah that didn't meet their criteria and so they stumbled over who jesus was in their expectations the first time and the greeks in their mindset they were distracted and saw it as foolish because they looked as i said at what christ did and they saw that's not a way a god would behave why would a god come to earth and let mere mortals beat him and slap him and whip him and put him to death on a cross. A God doesn't act like that. And so they saw it as foolish. Why? Because it didn't line up with their reasoning. And so they discounted it because they couldn't reconcile it mentally. So Paul says, verse 24, but to those who are called, a reference to those being saved, both Jews and Greeks, he says, notice, both Jews and Greeks who are called, There were some Jews and there were some Greeks who, no matter what others were doing, they exercised their free will and they chose to believe. Many didn't, but many also did. And this reminds us, it wasn't a total hindrance. Each person can still make their own choice and God gives us a free will, but that's why we're all individually accountable one day. Because though others may not believe, we're accountable for our willingness or choice to believe. And Paul says to those of us called who humble ourselves and believe, he says, verse 24, Christ is the power of God to us and the wisdom of God. In other words, to us who believe Jesus Christ is the greatest display of the wisdom of God ever. Wow. How wise is God that he found a way to still be just and holy and still come and become the justifier of sinful people, you couldn't put together a wiser plan of salvation when you really see it once the Lord opened your eyes to it. And to us who believe Jesus Christ's demonstration of coming to this earth was the greatest display of the power of God we've ever seen, that God in his power would restrain himself from judging humanity 
thumbing their nose and rebelling against God and in his power of love would come and subject his son to those things so that in his power he could rescue our souls eternally. Paul concludes verse 25 saying, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. In other words, certainly God, unlike people, is not foolish. The idea there is the smallest fraction of God's reasoning, of his intelligence, of his wisdom, the smallest fraction of it is way bigger and better than all the wisdom of humanity combined through the centuries. That's what Paul's saying there. And he says, as well, verse 25, and the weakness of God. Now, again, God doesn't have weaknesses like we do, but the idea there is the weakest area of who God is. He says, the weakness area of God is, is still stronger than all the power and strength of humanity put together. Look, this reminds us, whenever it looks like God's doing or allowing something, maybe that makes no sense to me in my own reasoning, maybe it even seems questionable. We have to remember God's ways are far above our ways. His thoughts and ways are much higher and we have to give God time because ultimately we may see on the backside that maybe what we don't understand now is the wisest thing that God has ever done. And ultimately we see it on the other side. And at times when we find ourselves and maybe it appears God is not exercising his power and acting in the way that we would desire him to in a situation, just wait. Because we may soon discover that God's willingness to refrain with his power to wait to the right time may be one of the greatest revelations of the power of God that we will ever see in our entire life. Would you stand?